been a fun week here in IV, uh, seeing the, the town transformed and full of life again, you know, watching all the skateboards and bikes uh, hitting the streets and, and crowding things up. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of life around here that was not here just a week ago, and that's, that's a lot of fun. It's also been fun uh, hearing the stories of, of all the folks that have been out traveling. Um, ben, the guy who plays guitar with us sometimes, uh, was in Indonesia for a month, and uh, Jerry here was, was in Yosemite doing some fun, fun stuff, and Catherine was in Finland. You know, I love hearing these, these travels and hearing all the things that people get into over the course of the summer, and how that can, think, can uh, reshape and prepare us for this process of learning and teaching. I've also talked with a lot of folks who are ready to get back into a routine. <laughs> ready, ready to get back to normal. I think I, uh, I fall into that camp. I'm excited to get things settled and be, be back and doing kind of what I normally do. This is ridiculous, but I'm actually looking forward to some little things around my house, including hanging curtains in my bathroom. <laughs> I've been putting off hanging these curtains for like a month and a half. <laughs> It didn't start as an act of procrastination, you know. Uh, at first, I just didn't have like the hardware. That it did this, these things didn't come with any hardware to actually hang them. So of course, I had to order them, which gave, bought me some time. <laughs> uh, and then when I did get the hardware a couple weeks ago, I just, you know, I, it, I had some really good excuses. I had to do some work for the diocese. I had to like get my kids together. Henry had this school project where I had to like cut out the shape of him and, and decorate it according to his heritage, which is essentially you know homework for me. Uh, I don't know how many parents have done like science projects and whatever over the years, but I think I got a lot of that ahead of me. Um, but the bottom line is this: I know what I have to do with these curtains. I just haven't done it yet. That is at the heart of the gospel this week. The willingness to attune the heart to what we know is right. The text doesn't mention it, but there has been a big shift from last week to this week in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem. Traditionally, we here in the church call this the triumphal entry. We think about this. This is what happens over Palm Sunday, right? We all, we all remember this. We got the crowds. We got, in Matthew's telling, we have Jesus rides into town on a donkey and a colt while crowds spread their cloaks, their jackets, their own clothing, and cut branches down on the road for him. And they shout, they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew says that the whole city was in turmoil. Then Jesus goes into the temple, clears out all the people who were profiting from there, saying, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. All of this had the religious authorities, the leaders of Jerusalem, on edge. They did not like it. It's the week of Passover, and the city is geared up to do what it does best, right? It's ready to celebrate and do it the way that it, they think it's supposed to be done. And in walks Jesus, a peasant country preacher with no credentials in a gigantic 
following. And here he is in their temple, in the temple, in the sacred holy place, the place that these folks operate. And the chief priests and elders are so mad that they walk in, interrupt Jesus while he is teaching. They walk into class in the middle of a lecture and they interrogate him. As a pastor, what stands out in this passage is the total disregard for the students. These religious professionals, the people who are supposed to care the most, are only interested in the threat to their authority. Notice how these religious leaders attack Jesus with questions. Their approach is not unlike what we call commonly the Socratic method. In Plato's writing, Socrates explores people's opinions through a series of questions that reveal weaknesses in their arguments. It's incredibly effective. Socrates, question, his questions were always founded, however, on the simple premise that Socrates claimed to know nothing. Which, whether honest or not, disarmed the intent of the questioning and positioned the people in the camp of hospitality instead of hostility. If you remember that distinction from last week and other times we've talked about it, this is something that encourages hospitality, lets the guard down, right? The way Socrates worked it. These days, the Socratic method is more commonly associated with like the first year of law school. Uh, a professor will single out a student on a particular day and drill them with questions about a case. Have you guys heard about this? Some of you maybe have experienced it. For most people, that is a process of intimidation that is demeaning and belittling. Such is the spirit of the chief priests and elders. But this ain't Jesus' first rodeo. He turns the tables on them by asking them a question. Where did John's authority come from? John, another country preacher, not tied to the centralized power structure of Jerusalem, but extremely popular. Even after Jesus' resurrection, for a long time, it is John the Baptist that history remembers the most, which is why so many of the Gospels start by tying Jesus to John. Jesus' question reveals the answer to the question that they have asked, that the chief priests and elders have asked. Jesus' authority comes from the same source as John's authority, from God, from the author, the creator of all authority, author, the holy and eternal God for whom these religious professionals are supposed to work. But instead of acknowledging the divine presence that authorized John and Jesus, the chief priests and elders pull a Socrates. They answer, we don't know. <laughs> I love the chuckles we got at that. 
Because it is. It's funny. It's a, it's a bold-faced lie. <laughs> but it is a safe lie for them. And now, the ball is in Jesus' court. He ditches the Socratic method, and he switches to his preferred method of communication. He's, he pays, he turns his attention back to those students that the chief elders have neglected so that they can hear the story too. Jesus' preferred method of communication, parables. Jesus tells stories. They're not just stories, but tales that use the power of allegory to reveal a deeper truth. Just like every great novelist, poet, songwriter, storyteller, author of all time. In this story, there's a father and two sons. One son says he won't do what his father asks, but he ends up doing it anyway. The other son says he will do it, but he doesn't. To make sure the chief priests are listening, Jesus speaks their language. He asks them a question at the end. Which son did the will of his father? And notice, Jesus doesn't tell the chief priests that they have answered incorrectly, right? They're right. The first son did the will of the father. Now, many of Jesus' followers were bad folks, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, quote-unquote. These are the people who on the outside did not claim to follow the law or do God's will. That's what a sinner is, one who turns away from God, right? But these people have turned to God through Jesus and John the Baptist. Meanwhile, the religious professionals who claim to follow the law and serve God's will do not live into that relationship with God. They don't recognize the authority of God because they don't know it. They don't. When they hear it in a story, they are free to recognize it, to admit that authority. They know what is right. They know the work they're supposed to do. They know those blinds need hanging. Similarly, we all know the work that we have to do. We do. The work is to love. Love God and love neighbor. We aren't called to be rich or famous or influential. Our work is not to win all sorts of prizes for being the best student or teacher, not to publish or perish, to get the good job, to read the best books, or maybe write the best books. No. Our job is to love. That is our purpose, to love God and neighbor. Loving God, not just checking in the box and going to church, it's not about following some rules. There's no recipe. Love of God is descriptive, not prescriptive. Just like romantic love, you know it when you feel it. Love of God and love of neighbor. This latter one is varied. Love your neighbor, neighbor, the people right around you, or as to a naturalist hippie like me, 
Love the ecosystem in which you live, the plants, the animals, the rocks, as well as the people you come across most often. We could stop right there and already have some sense of a deep but simple truth. Loving is hard. It's really hard. It's hard at any level. It's definitely hard to love the neighbor that's throwing a party when you're trying to sleep. But it's even hard to love our favorite people, like our friends. It's hard to love our children sometimes, particularly like this morning when a certain three-and-a-half-year-old that we know decided that five o'clock was the time the entire family should be getting up. (laughs) It's even hard to love our partners, the people we choose to be with, the people we love most in the most selective and intimate ways. It can be challenged to love each other day in and day out. Franciscan friar and author Richard Rohr says, marriage is the crucible in which we learn that we do not yet know how to love. In other words, it's those intimate relationships that reveal how out of practice we are at loving. (laughs) Which is not to say it's horrible, it's amazing, right? I'm so deeply grateful to that teacher in my bedroom, that sweet lady that puts up with me, to Mary Beth, for not only for tolerating and loving me, but uh, when I don't deserve it, um, and when I feel unlovable, but for showing me the grace of God in our daily lives in simple ways. The grace of God, that gift we do not deserve, the gushing water flowing from the rock, appears in those challenging loves. We get glimmers of God's accepting love when someone washes our clothes, cooks our dinner, lets us sleep in. Those glimmers of grace remind me, yes, it's true, it's hard to love, and I mess it up all the time but I refuse to give up. I refuse to be less of a husband or father than I can be. I refuse to turn away from the God who has called me to the vineyard. I refuse to let justice slip through into the hands of the selfish and indifferent. I refuse to let our planet be destroyed by our ceaseless consumption. I refuse to neglect the 690,000 young people who were enrolled in DACA or the 3.6 million in people in Puerto Rico suffering after the hurricanes. I refuse to go gentle into that good night, as Dylan Thomas put it. At times, it feels like we are in the desert, surrounded by rock and sand and dying of thirst. But even in that context, God is with the thirsty. God makes water flow from the rock. So we get up and we go to work in whatever vineyard is waiting for us. For some it's schoolwork, studying, learning, researching. For others it's teaching, passing on what we have learned and inspiring others. Whether you are a stay-at-home parent or a single person with a goldfish, our work is the same to love 
So whatever you do, do it well for the purpose of love. For in Christ we know first we were loved and now we love.